0: Co founder and GM for Oasis Consortium. It is a nonprofit organization and think tank to build standards for brand and the user safety. So, we have a think tank and experts and practitioners, as you can see, uh, mainly in the space of safety, privacy, and the DEI. So, this is the last part of the four part series, which we call the Fed for Better series. And this session mainly focuses on uh, privacy. And we have a great guest here. Alisa, Robert, and a Greg. So I will leave you to introduce yourselves. <laughs> Alisa, do you want to kick off first?
1: Sure. Right, thanks, Tiffany. I'm Alisa Hetnick, and I'm a partner at Kathy Dry, a law firm in D.C., and I'm um, all things privacy. I do the complaint side when the government investigates companies and the litigation side. So hopefully using that background to inform today's conversation.
2: Thank you, Alisa. Greg, would you like to go next?
3: Hi, I'm Greg Kitt. I'm the CEO of Global ID, which is about portable identity, self-sovereign identity. Previously, I was at uh, the Federal Reserve in the payments group out of the board. was also the chief risk officer for Ripple, was early investor at uh, startups like Twitter and Square, Coinbase and Robinhood.
4: So, been to the rodeo.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Robert, you are our
4: final guest. Hi, everybody. My name is Robert Cunningham, and I'm the head of legal at Catch. We are a privacy and data governance software company. And happy to be here. New to Clubhouse, and excited to start with a bang.
0: Thank you. Um, I want to kick off this whole session with uh, the first question. We have talked in this industry about more compliance. So, does more compliance equal less data? And how have you told about this trend in industry to the businesses?
4: Tiffany, I'll take that to to start with because it comes up often in my day to day and it's a really legitimate question. So let's start with what I think is undeniable that more compliance means more overhead for businesses. And I define that broadly. So businesses have to deal with these new laws, GDPR, CCPA, CPRA, whatever it is, the Virginia law. And sometimes dealing just amounts to deliberately ignoring. So that can happen too, but that's still dealing. So back to the question, does compliance equal less data? I think what we're asking is, does giving more transparency and more opportunities to opt in, more opportunities to opt out or not opt in, I should say, does that result in you collecting less data? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer to that is yes. And there are companies that have tested it. So as an aside, if, if any of you have ever experienced or would know that you were experiencing you know, a TCF version 2.0 implementation of consent, that's for the folks who are really in the details out here, that very well could have been designed as an effort to boggle the minds of consumers when they go to a web page. So like anything, all this can be done well poorly, meaning transparency and consent can be done well or can be done poorly. So what do you tell businesses? The second part of the question. I think that there was a period when putting your head in the sand or hiding in the herd or waiting and seeing was absolutely defensible. And I think that period has passed or is very nearly passed. And it's time to embrace the fact that more compliance also equals more compliance and compliance is becoming more valuable. And that's because the real risk of enforcement is rising. That's a topic all of its own that we can go into if folks want to, but it's also the value of compliance is also rising as customers begin to place a premium on brands and destinations that they can trust. I think it's likely that more compliance will result in less, but better and more comprehensive personal data. And I think companies should probably turn their focus to winning these commercial battles of the future because relying on third-party data is becoming a cost-benefit loser, in my estimation. But I'd love to hear what, let's start with you, perhaps, Alyssa, maybe respond to any of that or your own ideas.
2: Uh, Before we move to Alyssa, Robert, I don't know if um, you're hanging out in a mansion or something, but it's a little echoing where you are. I don't know if you're able to.
4: I will move to a different section of my mansion as soon as I can.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Alyssa, please go ahead. You know, Robert, I think I
1: agree with you. But I I think it's also one of those things where, yes, potentially less data in the short term, but smarter use of your data. And it reminds me of when security really came on. And you could either deal with it by ignoring it, but you'd pay the consequences. And I think we're just at that phase now with privacy. It's coming. You're going to have access to less data unless you're investing in the future unless you 're investing in your brand recognition, your relationship with the customer, I think the challenge is going to be the small and medium sized business. How do you then reach your audience and that's that's innovation we're going to try to solve that, and i don't think we have all the pieces laid out yet for that solution
0: greg what what's your thought on that? Honestly, I think we've talked about this topic you know <laughs> since the very beginning <laughs> when we' met you have been really entrenching that you know from the time of Twitter, then Square, then Coinbase and Ripple. What's your take on the compliance and the data right and privacy issues?
3: We have a different thought leader than most people. We, we believe the great thought leader in this in this realm is Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan's wife. And, and she had this saying, which is, just say no. And what she was talking about then was drugs. But, but we're suggesting that as an alternative approach to the GDPR mindset of having all these complicated rules about how you share sure data. And and our suggestion has been just don't share the data. Develop zero-knowledge proofs so people can determine what they need to know to figure out whether to grant you a particular permission to do something in a particular context or not. And rather than actually having access to the underlying data, you should just have access to enough information to know whether you can do something appropriately from a risk and compliance point of view. And what you may want is access to the data if you have to file a suspicious activity report But rather than get that data and then decide to file that report, you could get cryptographic access to that data and not need to share it in the first place. And so our view, one, of data minimization is just do everything with less data, but access to it on a need-to-know basis or immediate access to zero-knowledge proofs that let you decide whether you should do what you're going to do. So we think that GDPR is a way over bureaucratic approach that still results in way too much sharing and the concept that you can unshare data once you've shared it. Last I looked, except in uh, Back to the Future, nobody's invented a time machine that can make you really have that right to be forgotten, materialized, because it really is hard to like unshare something and really, really be confident that once something was public or was shared, it can be unpublic or unshared. We just think that... That's a bureaucratic construct, and that actually Nancy Reagan had a better understanding of this. I like that,
4: Craig. I uh, didn't see that one coming. It sounds like you're also speaking, at least implicitly, to Alyssa's comment about innovation. Uh, you are describing some innovative tactics to solve this problem in a different way, and as well intentioned as bureaucrats in, in Brussels may be, maybe there's some on here, who knows, uh, they did not perhaps have the same sort of exposure to the innovation that you're describing. They probably weren't
3: following Nancy on Twitter.
4: Yeah. And to my mind, you raised another hot topic of the day. Welcome Alyssa's comments on this as well. And this is being written about constantly, which is never mind how we minimize or purpose limit the data we collect. Just collect less data, right? This This is a topic that's in the news all the time. Collect less data. Stop making more rules around how we hoover up all this data. I think that's another one that's a tough sell to the businesses unless we are throwing that innovation catch-all out there or panacea to them. What do people think about telling everyone that the solution here, and there's actually some bills that I'm sure Alyssa is familiar with here, some legislation that proposes that we just not collect much data. What do we say to that?
1: Uh, I don't think it works. I think a first parties. And publishers. And just as a consumer, you want what you want, and you want it to work the way you want. And there's some amount of your data that is going to be necessary, both in your instance, but also in developing the products and services of the future. Problem, of course, is we went like, we got way too greek on that. And we didn't come up with a thoughtful business case for each piece of personal information that we wanted, because that's compliance, and it's tedious, and it takes time up front to do that. And now we're at that juncture where it's not just a nice to have, you need to do it. But if you do it, there's just a much more thoughtful approach to why you're collecting that data that I think connects more to the value proposition for the consumer. That's at least a grand concept, how it actually works in the mechanics of it.
5: We've got work to do. Yeah.
3: And again, I, I, I probably have a different view because I, I was not a big fan of, I, we, we call it the, uh, the Orwellian WeChat world or the uh, Mad Max Telegram world or the creepy Facebook world for like WhatsApp. But in in our view, I I just don't know why anyone needs to know my email address, my phone number, my physical address. They might need to know that those things have been verified and they can be accessed if that party has to file a suspicious activity report. But there are ways to contact me. There are ways to get my Amazon package delivered without me having to give over any of that information. So we start from a Greenfield approach, which is like, why would you share any of that? why not share just the fact that it's been verified? What do people want from a compliance point of view, from a risk point of view, with all that personal data? Unless they're gonna basically be turning you into the product and they're using it to spam you with ads. And so if we're gonna live in a post ad world, the question is, what is any of that information needed? Even your bank account, like there's all sorts of ways that people can get money to me without me having to give them the actual underlying
1: But Greg, how do we get from today to tomorrow? Because you've got all these companies that do have their first-party data, right? So even if we stop getting access to third-party data, what's the incentive for the companies that have the data to invest in what you're proposing? And then how do you get everybody else, right, the new entrants, to be able to buy into that?
3: Well, the the trick is, the classic one is, okay, what data do I need before I'm going to open a financial account for someone? Do I need all that underlying information? And people are always telling me, yeah, but the regulators require it. And I'm like, look dude, I'm the regulator. You show me where in my regulation, it says you have to store that, like over there in that room with a key, you might need access to that data. You might need to confirm that that data is correct. But there's nothing saying that you need to make a honeypot that's there for hackers to create a security violation potential or a privacy violation credential. You're just imagining that, just like you used to imagine in the exam manual that you used to have to have a server room with a key and someone standing guard. You didn't think that there was the possibility that somebody could do this in the cloud. So just like cloud computing can now replace how people used to do things with having a server room, There is a way to have verified information, access to it for compliance purposes without creating a honeypot. So what we're saying is there's companies out there that are willing to open up accounts for people without the friction of collecting all that personal information again. And they're just gonna hustle. They know that they have access to verified information that's been risk and compliance scored, and they're gonna reduce friction, have a lower cost to serve, and they're gonna basically take customers. It's a kind of a different way of doing open banking. If you still wanna go and do it the old way, collect all this information. What the hell are you going to do with it other than make it a security risk and a privacy risk for your company and your customers? You can do it. So look, we're not going to get Bank of America or Facebook to give up vacuuming all this personal data. But some of the companies that are newer, that are willing to hustle, want to make experience better for their end users, they are willing to do things on a true risk and compliance basis in terms of true risk, as opposed to checkbox risk and compliance procedures. And so best practice is not to collect a bunch of data that you don't really need to service the customer but you're just used to getting, maybe for other kind of marketing, spammy kinds of reasons, but maybe the future isn't built based around ads and marketing and spam.
0: Great. I would just like to add on to what you said. I think you know everybody on this panel are defenders for privacy, and that's why we're having this conversation. We do have a line between emerging and new platforms, as you said. right? They can embed safety, privacy, and even like di. From the design phase you also have the and existing platforms where on top of what you already have done you want to actually have a new infrastructure and content management for the future so i do think that the challenge for the new platforms and the challenge for the existing platforms are different i think a lot of what you're saying are definitely suitable for the new and emerging platforms and and, and what they should do but I think for the Lexi platforms I think potentially a different set of challenge there and I want like Robert to talk more to it but I think another thing is to your point Robert I think less data be precise on that right so we might have less volume data, but we might have more value of the data. So taking the Brave browser as an example, you know, compared to Google. So Google is actually now faced with a lot of a challenge and there are all the recent, you know, policy change and security features. And I've been always wonder how much the pressure is coming from knowing there's a whole new generation of the new platforms like Brave to truly actually not only defend privacy, but monetize uh, the privacy into a true LTV per individual and per customer. And very curious to hear your thoughts, like two scoop thoughts like Greg and Robert on existing platforms versus new
4: platforms, Google versus Brave here. I hope this is at least partially responsive, Tiffany, but I think that there has been a real haves and have-nots consequence of regulations like GDPR, anything that's strenuous and high overhead, as I suggested at the outset, has really divided the 10, 20, 50 companies that can devote the resources to knock this compliance out of the park and those that can't. And so, as with so many things in our culture these days, it seems that this value of data as a human right is being respected and represented at the top tier of the economy, but less so at the bottom. And it just so happens that the companies that can take the best advantage of this personal data are the ones that present the most transparent welcome mat. As it were, I actually personally am probably less of a privacy firebrand than I'm going to ascribe you to be, Greg. I hope you take no offense there. But my thinking in response to Alyssa's question of how do we get there from here, I think, is partially the law. And I, I guess I have to say that in part because I'm a lawyer. But when you look at what real compliance with these regulations looks like, whether CPRA or the New Virginia Law, or I don't know if anyone saw what the Spanish DPA said maybe earlier this week, and just created a whole new level of rigor around what it means to be transparent and what it means to have a legal basis to process personal data. If you really do take compliance seriously and enforcement forces you to take compliance seriously, then it may be that getting out of the third-party data game makes rational sense, perhaps to your satisfaction, Greg. Getting out of the third-party data game and when Google makes the third-party cookies go away, maybe it makes sense to just not be doing it anymore and move, like Google, for example to taking advantage of what you already have in your back pocket and, and focusing on innovation, as Alyssa says, or focusing on the advantage of this that some of these platforms started from. Google is, is moving away from the third-party cookies in Chrome into the federated learning of cohorts, the flock technology, where they are basically going to take advantage of their treasure trove of first-party data under the guise that that's safer. So what am I saying? I'm saying part of how we get from here to there is the law and enforcement of the law. And these laws will make it painful enough to be violators of privacy and transparency, such that new solutions to these commercial problems are rational, not just poetically just.
0: Great. Um, so we talked about GDPR, and our CCPA. I kind of want to take a step back, asking maybe like a philosophical question here. Like in Europe, data right is human right. In the US, it's quite arguable, the case. What's your opinion on that? And how does privacy place into this?
4: I don't think it's been established at least in the domestic context here in the us that uh, ownership of our personal data the kind of data we've been talking about that we as individuals own it or that it is a human right am i does anyone dispute that i, I believe that that's the case i dispute it i dispute, you dispute
1: it because because i do i do and i think it's communicated in different ways like you kind of go to the basic premise on like identity theft right like you have the right to your identity and that's just a basic privacy right I think it's where privacy then encompasses when your data interacts with others, when you're sharing it, and we can get into you know, discussions about what that means. But I think then the questions start coming up, how far does that right extend to when it's beyond your safety, when it's beyond a fraud context, when it's more discretionary? And that's the part that I think is not really clear and varies in the U.S.,
3: So my view is that privacy has been attempted to be elevated to a human right in Europe in in their European bureaucratic way. In the United States, privacy has never been recognized as a human right as far as in a commercial context, as far as I can see, because in the U.S. with terms of uses that are essentially terms of adhesion, you basically have the right to sign away your privacy rights. It's kind of like a right to work state where you basically makes it really hard for a union to operate. But the types of terms of use that we have in the United States mean that like right out of the door people are just waving their privacy rights goodbye. There's an attempt to carve that back through legislation but in the United States I used to think like it was the uh, 10 commandments then the Bill of Rights then the Constitution but in the United States the way things operate is terms of use are elevated above everything else, including common sense and privacy rights, as far as I can tell, have been shredded in the United States and Facebook owns your identity and Facebook determines who can get access to your data. That's why they're being sued by 46 states is because they've decided to cut off 40,000 developers so that even if you wanted to share your data, Facebook is going to determine, uh-uh, after Cambridge Analytica, not so fast. We know what's best for you. And in that sort of environment, the U.S. has clearly put contract rights ahead of privacy rights, and the attempt of states to start to carve this back on a state-by-state basis really you know, shines a spotlight on the fact that at the federal level, at the national level, there is not a point of view in America that's held across political persuasions or even non-political persuasions as to, like who owns what in America regarding your identity. And again, I wanna I want to differentiate between privacy as in identifying who you are versus your data. So it's one thing to say, like, I wanna be private and I don't want anyone to know who I am. It's another thing to say, I want people to know who I am, but that doesn't mean that they should know my phone number, my email address, my mailing address, my blood type. Like there's identity, which is your reputation, which may be a public good, may be something that's worth sharing so that people can build trust. And then there's privacy, as in I don't want to be bothered, harassed, abused, manipulated. Like, I don't want that stuff in my inbox. And in the U.S., we tend to conflate who you are with access to your personal information. So there's not nearly as nuanced the level of thinking about privacy in the U.S., as far as I can see, as to what there is in Europe. Downside of Europe is, yes, they have a very nuanced view of privacy, but unfortunately they've come forward with a very heavy-handed form of of regulation, which kind of denies physics and the ability to recognize that you can't really be forgotten when something's been shared or revealed to the public.
0: Now that we get our ideology out there, I do want to offer the space, especially for the background, for the audience here, to share a little bit what you're up to latest. What you're doing, Alisa, with your firm at uh, the law firm, Robert with Catch Greg with Global ID. How you translate your ideology to where you're building and operating right now? So, I mean,
1: this is the part where we, we are trying to prepare for the future. I, I think, you know, Robert, you said the law has got to drive this, but so many of those hard questions are what the law doesn't clearly address. And so it's, it's really just that strategy. What is that relationship with the consumer that you want? What's important about that but here are all the changing factors, and here's what we have to consider. I mean, like cohorts, for example, you talked about flock, but there are some concerns about the haves and the have-nots issue with that and, and that it goes back to that issue of privacy shouldn't just be for the wealthy and so i think it's it's trying to think through these challenges working with clients to update their programs right to evolve for that future right now there's education you got to get on the same page in order to build on top of that but it's a really interesting time while at the same time you got to defend yourself against legal action and that's not slowing down either
4: uh, yeah, I'd say that I spend, Greg, I'll get myself out of the way here. I spend a lot of my time, I'd say, picking up where where Alyssa might leave off. No offense to Alyssa there, but she, she helps companies understand the rules of the road and what they might need to do or what innovation might look like. And I help companies understand uh, where they take it from there. Like, what do you actually put into action on your websites, on your apps, and in your internal systems to collect data and manage it? according to these regulations or according to your interpretation of these regulations. And so, as Alyssa says, there's a lot of education that goes on and that sounds grandiose or hubristic because I don't hardly know all of the answers. As Alyssa says, many of these are are known unknowns, but we're trying to find a path forward that respects privacy and also respects the fact that businesses are trying to figure out what they can do with personal data recognizing, as Greg rightly points out, that there's a difference between who you are and the data that might be actionable around your, your being. And so for, for me, and, and full
3: disclosure, I'm you know i an investor in Brave, and we are. And one of the reasons we invested in Brave is we're, we're fascinated with the concept of a privacy-preserving browser. And frankly, folks, I, I'm not a privacy maximalist. It might sound like I am. This is really more of a what we call is like I'm in the identity business. And We view identity as a right and also a responsibility, and we do think that people have a responsibility to reveal enough information about themselves so that the other party can figure out whether they can trust them in a particular context and situation. So I'm not around campaigning for everybody to be like a dog on the Internet. I do think that you can give enough information so people can tell enough to know whether they can trust you or not. And whether they can offer you and make a decision to grant you a particular permission. And whether that permission is transferring medical records, getting on an airplane, being able to go into a facility that says only for people that have COVID credential, etc., that's the challenge in society today. And so I view privacy and security, which are sometimes put down as competing values as, as complementary, and the question is, what's the amount of trust you need for a particular situation? I, I do feel that a number of people are looking at the regulations, and they're they're projecting or imagining that the regulators have over exactly what is expected to be done. The thing that I'm encouraging in the regulation, both in Europe and in the United States and other countries, is it focuses more on principles rather than being so prescriptive because when it's prescriptive it fails to take into account the nuances of what technology and innovation can provide to get to the same desired principled end without being overly specific about how you do it needs to talk about the what and the why and leave the how to innovators and there's been a huge amount of innovation lately and in our world where we have a deficit of trust for reasons which I am in part responsible for like what's happened up with Twitter and fake identities. We need to redress that trust deficit and find ways where people can confirm their identities for authentication and authorization purposes without oversharing on personally identifiable information. So it is possible to have a world of identification, authentication, and authorization, and keeping that actual PII. Lockdown. That that to me seems like the challenge, but also all these companies, I mean, do you really want to be a honeypot and have all this data and become a target for both privacy and security breaches? We're encouraging folks that less is more here. Yes, you might have to move your business model away from sending out spammy ads, but there's other ways of making money besides the advertising-based model. We can move beyond Web 1.0, and we're seeing lots of other successful business models out there that aren't making money just by sending you more ads based on your PII.
0: So it's a good segue. We do see there's a paradigm shift from the moment when all the privacy and the safety measures and technologies were insurance policies in reaction to regulations towards where we really invest in safety and privacy uh, is potentially a platform differentiator. So if I ask today, what is the ROI? investing privacy as of today what would you say that i want to put into the formula and the factors to calculate this roi greg Mm. you are laughing go ahead (laughs) you investing brave
3: yeah i i I do (laughs) but so for me the the whole concept of of i'm not in the camp where people like i hate this thing of like well rich people get to have privacy and poor people sell their data and and so you live in this two-tier world of have and have nots I do think of privacy as a human right, I, I'm bemused by the fact that you know you can sell it away as a contract right, I'm tired of getting sued over this, being told I'm breaching the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because I'm a hacker for like accessing public data or accessing private data with the permission of the user in violation of the terms of use. So the whole concept of monetizing people's PII or looking for a return, which is basically avoiding getting sued or getting in trouble with your regulator by not abusing the PII. I view this as, as like the wrong kind of construct that I, I view uh, a concept of, of basically minimization and not collecting this as, as sort of an ethical issue that you shouldn't be collecting this information in the first place. It's just like people that, that surveil other people. I don't have to say it, it's just the wrong thing to do. It's uh, Greg, I think that's a
4: great retort. I don't mean to be pedantic here because I'm sure you you can presume this is true, but some data from the field where I spend a lot of my time is that companies are constantly asking me what's the cost benefit of what you're selling, to be entirely candid about it. Hey, uh, Robert, that sounds like a really cool platform you've got there to make sure that my data funnel dries up, right? Is this kind of thing that people might say. And so the kind of thing that we put into the ROI for what it's worth is if we work from a baseline that you are willing to engage in some level of compliance. You as a business are willing to engage in some level of compliance. How much employee time are you spending on a suboptimal or manual or friction-filled response to these laws? And how much, to Alyssa's point again, which was so well made, how much innovation can you bring to it to do it better? But my point my point is, undeniably, businesses are still asking, what's in it for me to address this hyper-compliance that appears to be required by these regulations versus the nice data-intensive data mining that I have been engaging in for years past. And I want to throw out a perhaps incendiary comment about the haves and the have-nots. I do sometimes wonder whether this is a solution in search of a problem. And I mean by that that a lot of people who purport to care about privacy still use these services that are known privacy offenders and seem not to think twice about And as long as we're having these conversations in the rarefied air of invite-only spaces, I wonder if we're not doing enough to be aware of the fact that people's behaviors are in tension with the sorts of things that we presume they care about.
1: But I think that has so much to do with consumers still want it to work, and they still want it to be interesting, and they they want the ROI. I don't know that we're there yet, because plenty of us embrace and really want and champion the most privacy protective ways of doing things, but then along the way, we're just not there yet in terms of delivering the experience on top of that very pro-privacy platform. And we may yet be there at some point in the future, but I still get back to the how do we get from here to there and, and embrace those and be able to harness the knowledge to get to a both usable framework that is privacy
5: protective. I'd love to go back actually to a, a kind of a more concrete example. I'd love to hear how you guys think about that concrete example in that, uh, in the ideologies that you all mentioned. One pretty easy one is, is Uber. And when you go to a taxi, right, you, you probably have to tell them where you're going and you have to trade that piece of data that, you know, I'm going to this, this spot in order for that taxi driver to drive you there. There's also probably other pieces of information, like your picture that's helpful for the driver to see who you are, your name, so they can confirm that you're the person that should get in the car. If you forget your wallet inside the car, it's probably helpful that they can, reach out to you in some way shape or form to, to tell you that your wallet's still in the car they also track you in your entire trip it's good for safety maybe because you can tell a friend hey you can track and follow me here they use it to improve their day systems they track a lot of information right so from all the, the stuff that we talked about today where do you come on what uber should look like in five
3: years ten years with privacy in mind so so this is greg and so an interesting thing about uber is It's true there's all this information, but think about what happens when the driver is trying to find you. You can text each other, you can call each other, but the driver doesn't know your phone number and you don't know the driver's phone number. Now it's true that Uber's in between and they know and they're connecting you, but they're actually connecting you through a level of indirection. But if you could imagine how that model could also be built in software without actually having a centralized operator like Uber... The whole world of DeFi and what we're seeing now is all that's possible without having anybody know that, and yet you still being able to achieve that. And so that's a perfect example of people being able to communicate in a certain situation. But once your ride is over, that driver can't call you anymore, and you can't call the driver because you don't have the PII to do that. Uber does, but you could actually even design this, and we're seeing examples of this now in the DeFi world, without Uber. Anymore so we have these new models where you can get things done you can communicate you can do the things you need to do and and in the case or situation where law enforcement guys with guns and badges need to come in because something terrible has happened you can still make that situation happen too as an exception to the normal use case all that with a much much lower footprint of shared pii now gdpr does not envision that this is possible. And yet we know it is possible and it's happening in the DeFi space, but there is the possibility of a future Uber that is more decentralized and flattened than what Uber is
4: today. I think I would challenge the presumption that a significant number of people want Uber or Lyft for that matter to change from how they operate today. I'm trying to invoke a little bit of Elisa's very relevant points that what consumers want is still critical here, right? I, I enjoy the ride sharing experience and I think it works pretty well. Greg, one of the things that I think about is recasting this as a security conversation. I'm willing to part with data that makes the experience, whatever the experience might be. I'm willing to part with that data. Even knowing that Uber may or Google or Facebook may profit off of that data in a way that does not directly redound to my benefit. I'm willing to part with that data if it's secure. And I think that there are massive opportunities for innovation on the security side, even though we, we operate under this cliche that everything's hackable it will always get hacked. I'm recasting the question as, what if the Uber experience essentially just gets better in all the consumer-friendly ways it could get better, but you have a secure data transfer and data hosting experience that is solved by technology, and I'm not a technologist. That would be my reaction to that. I, I, I like the experience, and I would like it to be more secure so I can feel more safe, even physical safety for that matter. But that would be my response. But, you know, that's that's what banks said. They said, well, people want
3: this, like just like they want Uber. So that's why we're always going to have banks. And then crypto came along and said, hey, we can make it more secure than banks. We can make it faster than banks. We can make it cheaper than banks. And, and all I'm saying is we've seen that now, not just for moving money, but you could have that for moving parcels as well. And so I, I want people to have the exact same experience as Uber, but you know, Uber's taking a big cut in between and so the new platforms that we're seeing have all the security all the privacy of uber without the weakness of uber and and uber is a point of failure it is a point of potential it's a honeypot of information for hacking just like the banks were and so we are now seeing solutions in a number of industries where the, the normal intermediary that's in between can be flattened out and that's that's been the amazing revolution of the the last five years. It's not happening right now with couriers, but we are seeing it happen with banks. But there are a number of industries where that fail point, that central point, can get disintermediated out, and we can increase security and privacy at the same time. Hasn't happened yet in the Uber space, but my gosh, that's the original industry I came from. That's the first company I took my IPO in. The holy grail for us is to like Uberize Uber, make the Uber system work without the Uber company. It's one big smart contract.
5: Greg, this might be an interesting uh, segue in in terms of uh, what would your pitch be to a person who uses Chrome, who uses Uber to switch to Brave or decentralized Uber? Like you're an average person currently just living in the world. What would you tell them to get them to switch?
2: As Greg is thinking of his answer, I I do want to say if anyone has any questions, the audience will start bringing folks up if they'd like to come up.
3: Go ahead, Greg. Well, like, I mean, the main advantage of Brave is, I don't know if you guys have used it, but the pages load a lot faster because you're living in an ad-based world where, like, a lot of what's loading on Google Chrome browser is is ads. And that whole system for them figuring out what to load is a heavy, heavy, heavy load. So forget about privacy. Forget about security. It's just the faster browser. And so, you know, on top of that, a lot of times people aren't going to, like, pony up and pay for privacy or even security. And look, I'm one of those lazy people. I'm I'm lucky in life. Yeah, if my privacy gets breached, it's like, okay, security, okay. It's not going to like ruin my world. And so I often make that trade off and just do what is easy from a, a laziness point of view. But there are simple things like less friction, like in banking for moving money. If I can move money faster, cheaper, with less complexity than a bank, I like that. And if I have a browser that loads pages faster than Google Chrome, I like that. So even though there might be privacy and security arguments, I like the other benefits of building a world that's simpler. And like in the Uber example, you could have a bigger pool. You could have the ability to access drivers that are both like Uber, Lyft, and other drivers. You can get more liquidity, faster service, lower prices, less of a middleman, but it takes work. And in some industries like browsers, like money, we're seeing the impact of this flattened world that still has the ability to connect with the party so you can still communicate without the heaviness and overhang of PII sharing. It just hasn't happened yet in the Uber space. I find that uh, seductive, Greg, and I think that it's a
4: noble goal. I also want to point out because I know from some of the folks on this call that I've spoken with in the past that we might not have seen the shining future of more personalization yet. Which is to say, like there's a level of a personalized experience that is tantalizing out there in the future that none of us has even seen yet. So this is meant to go in the completely in the other direction, right? With Alexa or Siri, you know, connected IoT more personal data, more analysis of personal data, more AI around personal data, that we could be exposed to experiences, and of course many of them are commercially motivated experiences, that would blow our minds in terms of the precision and the fulfillment and the timeliness of of having our desires satisfied. I know that all sounds very hand-wavy, but I want to throw that out there as a counterpoint because I have heard from some of these dreamers of what that world could look like. And I wonder if we're being potentially dismissive of of how wonderful that could be because we haven't been able to imagine it with any clarity. Well, but that that hyper-personalization is exactly
3: the self-referential world that's led to our polarized society. Like, we've gotten so good. When one person types in the search term of Egypt in a self-referential world of Twitter, they're going to be sent to the tourism site. The other, because of their preferences, they're going to be sent to the revolution site. And so we end up in our echo chambers, completely in personalized bliss where our personalized data is turned back on us in a clock-like orange kind of experience so like to give us exactly what we want and that leaves us all in a more polarized insular self-referential society that, that has exactly the kind of problems we're seeing and so i i feel like i've made my contribution to that frankenstein monster by being part of twitter and i'm you know proud of my time at twitter but I'm also aware of what, what has resulted from that, of that hyper-personalization world. And so to some extent, I'm asking the question of like, really, do we really want that hyper-personalization to play out to its logical extreme, Or are there some times when we want to actually be in a less personalized environment where something isn't making an assumption from everything else we've done, so that tomorrow is just a reflection of everything we did before... Because we put something in and what comes out reflects exactly what we put in, hyper personalized to us. That just results in a world of
4: hyperpolarization and echo chambers. I have a unique setting on my Alexa that tells me something that I don't want to hear every five minutes. So it just keeps me it keeps me honest. Greg, I can share a link to that to that feature if you're interested. Has, has anyone in the audience wanted to tell us that we sound like buffoons or tell us that we're right on or anything?
2: I have to say, as mostly a listener in this room, I found this conversation fascinating. For me, most of the conversations where people mostly agree with each other is quite boring. So I love this exchange and dialogue of people who don't quite agree on the topic, but agree on the importance of it. Oh, I think we have somebody who would like to come up. Hi, Tony. How's it going?
6: Hey, it's going well. I I, I just want to follow on to what you were saying about uh, hyper-personalization and Maybe that's not the right direction or there's some pitfalls with it. For the first time uh, yesterday, I had a a chat with an AI chatbot called Kookie, which I'm sure all of you have heard of. My experience of that was very strange because it was actually delightful for the first few minutes. It was delightful because the answers were not predictable actually. Like it, it kind of threw me a couple of different turns and I'm like, okay, well it's clunky But it's kind of delightful because it's clunky and the answers are not predictable and the conversation was not predictable. But I'm like, well, once that technology gets dialed in and Kuki knows what I like to talk about and when I'd like to talk about it, it's gonna get boring, you know? So I I had this like very conflicted experience uh, with Kuki and uh, we had this funny uh, conversation about the Turing test. And uh, anyways, I just wanted to put some comment about like there's this, specialness around human interaction, which is its unpredictability and the delightfulness of, of, for me, of conversation is that unpredictability. And once you start getting into this hyper specialized, show you what we know you, you like, I think that gets, uh, extracted.
2: You know, it's interesting for me, the consumer product that feels like they're consuming the most data, delightful personal experience is TikTok, So the amount of data that they're collecting on me is like unknown, but vast. I know that because it's so hyper-personalized to me. They show me videos of other Indian women who are my same age who also live in New York and like going to expensive restaurants. So hyper-personalized, but what they do is every once in a while they throw in a video. That's not something that I would normally click on or something I'd normally like and see how I react to it. So I don't know. I think there is some, some
0: AI and some technology that says let's account for randomness because we know the human condition loves that. Well, that's maybe off the topic from AI off to AGI. It is a scary journey. And I think, you know, not sure like I want to be there yet. But I just want to, I know like we are almost on time. I just want to highlight a couple of like takeaways. Honestly, Shweta, I agree with you. I find this talk fascinating for many two reasons. We really have different perspectives here. We have Greg, very futurist and really doing groundwork to make that happen. We also have like Robert here try to say, great, that's all we want. We want to be there. We want to be everybody's identities are protected. But we're dealing with majority of the platforms and companies not doing that. While Greg is trying to build that futurist state, what can we do today? And to really help building the passage and a path toward there. I think that's really related to what Elisa mentioned and constantly remind us through this whole talk that look, from here to there, there's so much groundwork. And if we really want to jump from this mountain to next mountain, we need some great technology and great privacy lawyers to make sure we don't jump up the cliff, we really get to where we want to be. So really thank you for this whole panel bringing so diverse and important perspectives to this audience.
4: Thank you,
3: Tiffany.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tiffany. This was fun.
3: Thank you for hosting.
0: Thank you.
5: So fun. Such a good group. Tiffany, do you want to say a few parting words in terms of wrapping up this, this series?
0: Just want to say thank you, Cindy and the Shweta, for co-hosting this four-part series. We started with Safety by Design, and then we look at all the regulations and community policies, especially around Section 230, around the safety issues. Then last season, we talked about technology aspects. And of course, we cannot talk about trust and safety without privacy. So it's really a good wrap-up with experts like Alisa, Greg, and Robert here. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Cindy and Mishweta
5: amazing well with that we'll wrap the room up thank you all for coming and sharing all of your awesome wisdom if you want to check out community builders club you can tap on the top to follow the club otherwise we'll see you next thursday and tiffany thank you so much for curating the last four weeks bringing awesome people bringing everyone together It's, it's been great
2: thanks everyone